great to be here. Uh, I've, I've heard and known about Indelible Grace uh, Church for quite a long time. Uh, I don't even know if Michael knows this, uh, but we talked, we talked and met each other a good almost eight, nine years ago um, and just talked about church and, and life and everything like that. So it's a real pleasure to be here today. It's great to see Andrew Hose, one of my former college students down in San Diego. So um, good to reconnect with him, hopefully. And uh, let me take a moment and pray for us and we'll, we'll jump into the sermon. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, as we uh, come before you at this time to reflect and think upon what it is that you desire to teach us and show us and, and, and change us in, we pray your spirit would be upon us at this time. Uh, may God, we be open and honest with our hearts uh, as you mold us and make us more like Jesus um, right now. And we thank you, Lord, for, for your grace and goodness in, in meeting us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our... Uh, Scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to read this passage for us as we get into this. James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the word of God. Uh, growing up, I only have one sibling. It's, it's always been myself and my younger brother, and even to this day, we still go back and forth. We're, we're grown men with families, and yet we still go back and forth about who the favorite son really is. Um, and, you know, we know the right answer. The right answer is our parents love us both equally, but sometimes the real answer comes to light. You know, back when, um, this is a while back, but when Facebook was kind of the only social media account that you can make, the only kind of way in which to connect with people online, uh, I found out that my mother had signed up. She had signed up for a Facebook account, which is already a little scary to begin with, uh, that she had gone into that world. And figuring that, you know, she she's not a very tech-savvy person, and I thought at the time it was a recent development, so I added her as a friend. Um, and I told my brother, and I said, hey, brother, mom's online, she's on Facebook, you need to add her. To which he told me, hey man, 
It's old news. She's been on Facebook for like a year now. And so on that day, both my brother and I knew who the favorite son was. Now to make it worse, not only had she friended my brother before me, a long time before me, she had also added old co-workers and schoolmates and classmates, and she had never bothered to look up and befriend her oldest son on Facebook. And so not only was I not the favorite son, I wasn't even her top 30 favorite people. You know, the, the kind of heartbreak you put upon your child by doing that. It was tough. Moment of uh, uh, killing my pride there. You know, a majority of the choices we make in everyday life are, are rooted in some form of having a favorite or having uh, a, a desire or a bias or a prejudice toward one thing or another. We pick restaurants because we're partial to the cost or to the cuisine, right? Uh, we watch TV shows or movies based on a favorite actor or actress or the genre that we prefer. You know, we're always looking at preferences and biases, and most of them are harmless. Most of them are innocuous. And yet, our passage today warns us that when we treat those who are made in God's image, as we gather as the church, as we live in community, as we open our doors to welcome others, when we do it in a form of favoritism, when we do it with a form and a heart of partiality, it can be poisonous and it's dangerous and it very often should be rejected. And so what we're going to do is explore today what favoritism really is as as James defines it, uh, why God hates it, and why it doesn't belong in the church, and how does God desire for us to truly live in response, in a different way than being partial to others. So we're going to look at a couple things. First, just kind of a, uh, the, I think the outline is in your bulletin, so I don't need to uh, speak that out for you guys. But so, beginning just thinking about the foolishness or the folly of favoritism, you know, James jumps into our passage in chapter 2 and he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And partiality, uh, kind of as I use that term, switching back and forth between partiality and favoritism, the, the literal kind of way in which it, it means in Greek uh, means receiving the face. It, it's, the literal translation is receiving the face as James uses it. And so... Uh, Partiality or favoritism in James 2 is making judgments about people based strictly or rooted solely on external or outside appearances, right? And so looking upon others and judging simply upon their outside appearances. And so it's not a surprise that James kind of goes deeper into this and uses a socioeconomic circumstance as the example, Right? In verse 2, he talks about two different people coming into the assembly of believers, the church as they worship, and they, two people wearing two different types of clothing, one with fine clothing, um, and the word kind of describing their clothing, fine clothing, is that the same word used to describe how the angels are, are clothed in Revelation. Right? So this fine clothing, a person walks in dressed and in an angelic heavenly form, versus one who wears shabby clothing, again, a term used in the Bible to describe filth dirty, gross. And so these two people walk in, and the one in heavenly clothing, dressed in glory, uh, is given a seat uh, 
close to the front, which I think most of your church was avoiding at the beginning of the service. <laughs> but, but typically that's a good place to be. Um, and those who were wearing the shabby, filthy clothing uh, were given a place. Not, they weren't even given a place to sit. He talks about they're usually told to stand or even sit at the feet or on the ground. Right? And so kind of using that example, James is pointing out how favoritism creates uh, just this the division within the church by looking at someone and simply making a judgment and then placing them or putting them in a place uh, based upon these outside uh, circumstances or appearances. And he concludes in verse 4, he says, when you do that, when you look upon someone and you, you look on the outside and make judgments about people and, and uh, give to them, uh, based upon those outside appearances, verse 4, he says, you are a judge with evil thoughts, meaning you are acting and showing favor out of selfish motivations, out of ungodly motivations, out of an evil desire rooted within you toward others. And this is why favoritism and partiality is not the same as talking about friendship, right? We all have friends, and of course I will uh, spend time with my friends and treat them differently than I were a stranger or even my neighbor. Not because I want to see them differently, but because uh, there's a difference between showing favor towards someone uh, out of an external appearance or the practicality of it, of knowing you can get something back from them, versus a genuine care for another person, another human being, because I know that they genuinely care for me, Right? And so there's a difference between favoritism and friendship. In, in a lot of ways, you know, we think about Jesus. He had 12 disciples. Why didn't he have 20? Right? Why did he only favor 12? And within those 12, he had three that he really hung out with on a regular basis. Why did he favor the three versus the 12? Right? Now, is that an issue of he looked at them and said, well, those three, man, they're built. I want some bodyguards. Those are the guys I trust. Or was it just because there's a sense of friendship, a sense of kinship of connection that he especially felt with the three and then he especially felt with the twelve right in terms of what he was doing in terms of understanding where the kingdom was going to go in that same way you know some of us have small circle of friends big circle of friends right but there's a difference between your friendship with the your friendship with them versus a, a form of favoritism of people who walk through the door of your church of how you treat people who you sit next to uh, in your life And so understanding that difference. Now, I don't know what the situation here is at Indelible Grace. I don't know your church well enough to, and and of course it'd be uh, foolish of me to presume anything uh, about Indelible Grace. I don't know if this is an issue for this church of favoritism creeping in and how people are treated as they attend here. But it's not just socioeconomic, right? It's not just about if a homeless person walked in or a really wealthy person walked into your church, how would you treat them? It also has to do with physical appearance, Right? Or someone who walked in who's a different personality. Uh, or someone who's in a different life stage. How were they treated? How do you see them? How do you, uh, how do you spend time with them? How do you engage them? Right? Because if we're all honest, we've uh, all probably been guilty at some point of looking at people based on external factors or based on outside appearances and pronouncing judgment or acting in judgment toward them one way or another in a way that is uh, ungodly and not loving. So why is James making this such a big issue? Why is this a big issue for the church? Why should we care about this 
um, a lot. The church has so many things going on, right? We've got to preach the gospel. You know, we've got to help the poor. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got to make sure everyone is taken care of. Why is this, why is this such a poisonous thing? Why did James, as he wrote this letter to a, a church and churches in the area, why was this such a big deal for him, right? And it's twofold. First off is that favoritism denies the very core message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. It denies the message of Christianity. In verse 4, favoritism is making distinctions among the people of God. It's dividing the church as the united body of Christ brought into creation by God. As you guys had the call to worship, and uh, Pastor Michael was talking about how how, uh, the church is a new creation. God is calling people and bringing it together and speaking into existence a new body of believers in the same way that he spoke into existence the whole universe. In that same way, when we show favoritism, we're we're dividing that which God has created as we worship here, right? You think about the early Christian church. In America, the church is kind of this big, you know, monolith, and and you you don't really, there's so many different versions of it and forms of it, and, you know, uh, in places outside the Bay Area, uh, Christianity is kind of the, the norm for a lot of people. And yet within the early church community, as James was writing to them, this is a close-knit, small community. It's a minority amongst the vast number of religions that uh, reigned in the day, uh, uh, a persecuted community uh, in light of the way the government uh, was treating them. And so even more for them, their behavior, how they acted, how they lived as they gathered to worship would reflect who they were and what they believed. Right? They were under an incredible microscope of the world around them and the reputation of what they believed, of the Jesus they believed in, and the message that they preached was at stake constantly. Something that the modern church, today's church, perhaps doesn't take as seriously as it should. You know, if you, um, if for example, and this is one of those social issues that we face today uh, in America, if, if you're falsely arrested by a biased police officer, right? If you were falsely arrested by someone, uh, a police officer that was terrible and that was biased and was treating you uh, based on your external appearances, it's highly likely that you're not just going to come out of that situation and go, well, that officer was terrible, but thank God I trust all other police, right? The reality is, is because of that experience, you're going to have a different view of how you see the whole police force where you're going to have questions about whether they truly want to protect and serve. In the same way, if you were, as a father, if you're partial toward one of your children and you treat, treat one worse than the other, you don't just destroy the one child, you destroy your household, don't you? You destroy your family. And your responsibility as a father is, is uh, the, the way your child, both your children, will look at you and think about you as a father. The way they understand fatherhood will change, won't it? In that same way, the church that divides based on external appearances, the church that, is, that, that welcomes people based on how they look, how they dress, what their story is, whether they, they are socially acceptable as they come in through your doors, or how deep of a relationship you're willing to engage with someone because they're easy to get along with, or it's hard because they're a little socially awkward, right? How you engage in that. If you divide based on those type of things, you are dividing, you're dividing as a church 
from the common faith shared as delivered to us by the saints, as given to us by God in Christ. The church suddenly becomes less of a united body of Christ and more of a caste system, doesn't it? It becomes a hierarchy where you have great believers, those who are really welcome to the church, those who are kind of, ah, we're glad you're here, and then you've got people who perhaps you just keep on going down. Right? We run into that all the time. This denies the central message of Christianity that Jesus came to save anyone and everyone who was desperate enough for him. And the reality is, as you look at the story of Jesus in the Gospels, regardless of who came to him, whether rich or poor, young or old, Jewish or Gentile, Jesus welcomed and and addressed those who simply recognized their need for him, regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they came from. And so when we welcome based on personal preference, we are welcoming in a manner that's counterfeit, that is uh, contradictory to Christian behavior. It's incompatible with your very calling as the church, as God's people here today. Because every single one of you here has a different socioeconomic background, has a different personality, has different physical features, and yet all of you by grace through faith, if you are trusting in Jesus today, you are here worshiping because all you've been able to bring to Jesus is your brokenness and your failure and your sin and your need. That's all you offer to Him. And He gives you grace upon grace upon grace. And if anything, um, there is the backwards nature of the Gospel message itself how it's countercultural in so many ways, right? Verse 5, James writes, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Very similar to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, 3, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God's. You know, in, un, in, in worldly terms, we all walk in here, and many of us walk in from unequal footing. Some of us had to ride the bus. Some of us drove our Benzes, Right? Some of us had a really nice breakfast. Some of us couldn't eat breakfast, couldn't afford it, right? All of us walked in here from different places, and yet in spiritual terms, we all gather as beggars in need of God's mercy all the same. We sit here relying upon Christ all the same, that before the cross, we kneel before Jesus on level ground. And so that is why favoritism, as it drives a division in the church, is so poisonous and why it hurts the church. It hurts the church as a whole. It hurts the church's testimony to the world. And frankly, it hurts each and every one of us as we think about what it means to be a community together. Another way to think about this, too, is everyone who trusts in Christ is also not just someone who recognizes what they lack, but also recognizes what they have in Jesus. Meaning, regardless of what your bank account looks like, your spiritual bank account in Christ, everyone here has the same amount. We have Christ. We have the riches of heaven. And so James reminds us that the true wealth and riches are spiritually given, not materially earned. So no one here is a self-made success story spiritually. You are an heir. Every one of you has inherited Christ if you believe in Him and Him alone. 
And so you have the same fortune. So who are you to go and look upon your brother or sister in Christ and say, you aren't worthy if they trust in the same Savior and have received the same inheritance as you? Favoritism, in essence, is saying, I get to enjoy God's blessing because he accepts me despite what I think I can bring or despite what my worth is spiritually. But I refuse to bless you until you prove your worth to me. Until you prove how worthy you are to deserve my love, even though they've already received the love of Christ. You see how backwards and disgusting that is? You see how contradictory that is to who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what the church should be about? You might live by grace before God, but others don't get grace from you. And that's problematic, and it denies the message of the gospel. It also breaks God's law. Favoritism breaks God's law this way. Verse 8 talks about how God's royal law is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the greatest commandment, right? Uh, love your neighbor, love your Lord, your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And remembering that for James, as he thinks about this through the eyes of Jesus and not just through the Old Testament commandment, neighbor wasn't just, oh, the person who looks like me, right? In the Old Testament, your neighbor was the fellow Israelite. And yet in Jesus Christ, he changes that and says your neighbor is anyone and uh, everyone, right? Regardless of where they come from, what their nation, tribe, or tongue is, you are to love them well. And so the reality is, is uh, James is thinking about the expansion of this. As you love your neighbor as yourself, if you fail to love anyone who walks through your doors as they are your neighbor, and typically churches are made up of people who are neighbors because you live in this area, a failure to love them is a breaking of God's law. Now, some of you might ask, well, didn't we just get rid of the law? I mean, Jesus came and he, he, he's, he's the Savior and he did all this law stuff so we don't have to worry about the law. And that's not true, right? We need law. If you think about even everyday life, we need law in our lives. We, don't, we all operate based on law. You can't have a sense of true freedom or a sense of true love or true friendship without having a boundary for those things, without having laws for those things, right? Tell your wife, I love you, but I don't want monogamy to rule over me because that way I can truly be free. We'll see how much love can really uh, grow in that type of relationship, right? We all need boundaries. We all need laws. That's a good thing to have. And the law of God is not a negative thing. It's, uh, it's, it's seen negatively because in a lot of ways, you know, when we see the Ten Commandments and we realize I've broken that one, that one, that one, that one, and that one, it's easy to just be like, man, this is too much. It's overbearing. And yet, the law of God's a good thing because it reveals God's character, does it not? It reveals His holiness, His justice, His goodness. We need that. We need to see that. We need to embrace that. And here, James, he even says, love doesn't go about beyond the law or says, love doesn't need the law. It says, love fulfills the law. Love makes it whole. It makes it complete, right? And so when we show partiality, when we fail to love our neighbor in a way that fulfills the law of love for our neighbor, the way God has called us to, we are breaking God's law. We are breaking what God has called us, how God has called us to live. Not only do we break his law, we are 
in essence, your favoritism, when you do that, when you're showing partiality in that way, you're actually creating your own law. Are you not? Because what you're saying is, God's law, in some cases, I might break this, but you know what? I've got a better way of viewing people and seeing people and loving people. I can do this better than God does it. And so not only are you breaking God's law, in many cases you're creating your own law. You are acting as if you are the, as if you are God. You are the lawgiver. You, you're usurping God's responsibility and authority over you. You're making yourself a God. Does that make sense? When you choose to break God's law and you say, you know what? I'm not even going to judge them based on how God judges people. I'm not going to see them through the way Christ sees them. I'm going to see them through the way I see them. Then you are creating the law. You are being the lawgiver. And that is not love fulfilling the law. That is you in your selfishness, you in your pride, trying to fulfill your own law. And that is far from what God has designed us from. And that's what James is challenging us to see is how far we can get away from how God has called us to live as the church. It's poisonous. It's in essence saying, God, I can live and love others in a better way than Jesus Christ did. I will fulfill your law of love better than Jesus could ever fulfill your law. And it's another reason why God hates favoritism. It's another reason why we should own it we should confess it and we should turn away from it. So then lastly, how do we how do we how do we address this? Right? We all know it's bad, we all know it's wrong. None of us want to be victims of it, and none of us want to treat others that way. So how do we begin to address this? Uh, we all need mercy. We all need some sort of hope and help. You know, some people here would say that to address favoritism, what you need is more impartiality. You need people to be more just. And fair. We need more, um, yeah, we just need more people to be fair in every single thing. Think about every part of your life, right? All, all of us ever want in life, we just want a fair shot, don't we? We want to just have a fair chance at all the things we do. In my career, we want it, we want a fair chance to do a, to do good work and earn a fair wage. That's all we ask. At school, you want a fair test, don't you? Right? You want to receive a fair education as everyone else. One that's impartial, one that treats everyone exactly the same. At home, you strive for fairness between your children or in dividing up household chores. Make sure that you do the right amount, she does the right amount, and it's fair. If you go to court, you want a fair trial, don't you? Right? You want a fair hearing from a fair judge and get a fair chance to plead your case. And the hope is that in all of this, you will create environments of impartiality. Environments where there is no favoritism at all. That is the hope. That is what we want, and that is what we desire. You know, at our church, Grace Alameda, uh, once a month I meet with our youth kids. And when I do so, it's usually because we're, we're trying to answer one big hairy, audacious question that uh, our kids always want to come up with. You know, so once a month they'll ask one of those tough theological or, or just whatever youth children think of uh, questions that, you know, gives us a time to kind of talk to them and walk them through it. And so one of the questions they asked a couple months ago was, why does, and it's one that not just youth kids ask, it's one all of us probably have asked at some point, how does a loving and merciful God send people to hell? Like, why would he do that? 
You know, it doesn't seem fair, right? That's one of those, it doesn't seem fair type questions. And for definitely a youth child, that's a, that's a question of fairness. That's a fair question for them to ask. And, and, and you know, that, that might be a question that some of you are asking today. And you've got a great pastor that I can answer it for you. So talk to Michael about it. No, I, <laughs> no one of the things that we talked about um, with, uh, I talked about with our students was, you know, how it's framed. The problem with that question is actually how it's framed. Because we always talk about that doesn't seem fair. And yet, that the assumption then is, you can say that, that why would God do that to people when the reality is, is if people are morally unrighteous to begin with, if we all are broken, right, and we're not neutral, we're not just like at a zero or a plus, but we're all minuses morally and spiritually before God, then the question isn't whether should God, why does God let us, why does God let anyone perish? The reality is, why does God show anyone mercy? Right? Because true fairness would actually say everyone should perish if God were 100% fair, right? And so the reason why I bring this up, and again, if you, if you actually have that question, and I know that those two minutes probably didn't answer it, again, seriously, explore that. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to talk to your pastors about it. Um, so I just want to encourage you just real quick, if that is a question you have in your heart, it's worth exploring and to not be afraid of that. But that being said, the, re- the reality is this. If God were absolutely fair, like we always admit, if, we, if the church was 100% seeking just fairness and impartiality at all times, right, then the reality is it would be a very insufferable place. It'd be a hard place to live because all we have is law, law, law. All we have is the rules, 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 right? And we could get by, but none of us actually want to live that way, do we? None of us actually want to operate that way because the reality is if God operated that way where he only was uh, seeking justice and fairness and law and impartiality all times, then none of us would have hope to exist. None of us would have hope for the future. You know, and the reality is as much as we all tell ourselves we want law, we actually really need mercy. We need grace. And that's why James is able to say in verse 13, it's mercy that triumphs over judgment. It's mercy that triumphs over judgment. It's grace that triumphs over this demand for justice. In that same way, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, I was going through the sermon again, you know, is, um, and it's a well-known story, Les Miserables, right? With Javert being the inspector who lives solely by the law, the word of the law. And yet the moment someone shows him grace, he doesn't know how to operate outside of this world of pure justice, of pure law. And so out of that hopelessness of not knowing what to do when a law has been broken, but forgiveness is there, he commits suicide because he doesn't know how to make sense of a world outside of the law. Another way to think about this, and some of you might remember this in the news, um, recently in Dallas, there was the uh, police officer who was off duty, stormed into what she thought was her apartment, found a man sitting there eating ice cream by himself on the couch, and proceeded to shoot him. It was not her apartment, she was in the wrong place. And when they sentenced, uh, she was found guilty, and was sentenced, and at the... um, after the sentencing, uh, the brother of the deceased uh, had some words for her. And in that moment, uh, 
in essence said to her, I forgive you uh, because Jesus has called me to forgive you and because my brother would have forgiven you too. And it proceeded to embrace her. And there's a, a part of the world that looked at that and said, that's not what matters. What matters is justice was served. But there's a part of the world that, that is able to see that and say, look, justice is served, but true change comes in the mercy shown. The way that hearts are changed is in that grace that is shown in that moment. The ability to forgive something so heinous. Because we all want fairness, but what we really love is mercy. If you cause a car accident, fairness means yes, you will pay for damages. But wouldn't it be nice to have mercy? To have those damages waived. If you argue with your spouse and it's your fault, fairness means maybe sleeping on the couch. But we all know a marriage that doesn't, that that, uh, marriages have to function on mercy and forgiveness for them to be whole, for them to be healthy. We want a fair God, and we we do have a fair God who deals with justice, uh, deals with injustice, he deals with evil, and and he desires righteousness. But we have a God who also offers mercy in Jesus Christ, who fulfills his justice in Jesus and not in you. And instead, he gives us mercy and grace at the cross. That Jesus would receive the final judgment, the harshest judgment. Not you, Jesus took that judgment. So that mercy would be yours. Mercy that is indiscriminate. Mercy that is unbiased. Mercy that doesn't look at you and go, oh, you have the right amount of money. Or, oh, you're the right height or weight. Or, uh, you have the right life situation. You get to have my mercy and grace. But a mercy that goes out to all who simply say, Jesus, help me. Romans 11, 30-31, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Meaning that those who... you, If you have received the mercy of God in Christ, how much more should that mercy pour out toward those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ especially? How much more should that pour out to those who need Christ, who need mercy, who don't realize they need mercy, but just want justice and fairness? It leads us to sacrificial giving. Fairness and and partiality will say, I will give you some, but I will keep some for myself. But mercy says, I will give you all, and I will keep none because of what Jesus has done on the cross for me. I can do that. It's okay. Because I have it all in Christ. This is why God hates favoritism. Because favoritism uses people to love things and to get things. But mercy uses things to love people as God has created them and as God brought them into your life. And so, as you grow in this, as you rest in the mercy of God, as you allow that to actually form you by trusting in Him, by growing, by gathering as the church, you will begin to see any person who walks in, whether poor or rich, and recognize that their need for Christ is one and the same. That both the perfect saint who has no record and the wretched sinner who has all kinds of records still need the same blood of Jesus. Still need the same forgiveness and the same grace. That's why grace and mercy are here when you gather and worship. 
Because in every single other sphere of your life, when you go to work, when you, when you spend time with uh, just neighbors, as you go to do all these other things, everywhere else people are operating by law. Everywhere else people are demanding justice or fairness. There's got to be places of grace for people to go to. Places where they can find mercy. That's where the church has to be. That's where your homes have to be. And favoritism and impartiality will destroy that. It will ruin that testimony. And so this morning, because of no merit of your own, but by the mercy of God, may you rest in His love. May you rest in His grace. May you know that God has brought all this into your lives and may you view one another and may you view anyone who walks through these doors. And more importantly, as you go out into the world and you view others, may you view them not through the lens of judgment or favoritism, but view them through the lens of of the grace that we have received graciously in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, just think and reflect on the good grace of our God and the way in which you love us so well, the way in which, Lord, you, you do not give us what we rightly deserve, but that was put upon Jesus, and instead you give us forgiveness and mercy. Father, we rejoice because of that. May that... Uh, may that transform the way we view others, the way we treat others, the way we encounter and engage others in the church and in our homes. That, God, we would no longer look upon external appearances and do things for ourselves, but that, God, uh, because we are so loved and so well-received by you, despite who we truly were, uh, that, Lord, we would learn and grow in serving and loving others um, in that same manner. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you that, Lord, all glory goes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.